Welcome to Rock and Roll Nuggets, Tales from the Gold Mine. You know that gold mine of rock and roll where we always dig deep to explore the myths, the legends, the lore. And today, as always, I will be your host. Oh yeah, the name is Heggs, Luther Heggs. And today's episode is about something dear to my heart, something I'm going to call Rock Stars Are Us, meaning rock stars are fans. Uh, because I assume that's why you're listening to this show. You're a fan of rock and roll. And the best rock stars, what I've found over the years, the best ones, who are the most passionate on stage, who give us their all, are true rock and roll fans. And I've, I've noticed this over the years, and people ask me about, why did you get into the business, and how did you end up being in the business, where you're on the road doing shows, doing lighting and sound, and you're, and you're on the radio for all those years, and eventually at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, it all starts because I'm a fan of rock and roll. I remember how much it meant to me. When I, I finally got my break where I was able to get a, get a job working with a sound company doing shows on the road, but I almost gave up. I was almost 30 years old, and I said, I, I can't keep doing this. I I almost gave up my dream. I was doing all these local shows. It, it hurt me many times to go to concerts because I, I wanted to be working with those lighting people, those sound people. I wanted to be a part of the show, and it just broke my heart. And I finally got my break, and then, well, one door after another opened. And the rock stars, I saw they were just like that, the best ones. They were fans at the heart of it all. And the ones that do the best shows, the ones that have to do the longest shows, and they're most heartfelt. I mean, the Who or Bruce Springsteen, who does these marathon shows of over three hours long, they are true rock and roll fans. And today, in this episode, we're going to talk about, in particular, the Rock Hall, where we saw many rock stars, some of the biggest in the business, come in and just turn into teenagers. They would revert to the days of their youth when they fell in love with rock and roll for the first time. And I'm going to tell you some of those stories. Now, I wasn't there the one day that Bono was there from U2, but when I started working at the Rock Hall, it was one of the pictures in the vault where we keep many of the artifacts that just grabbed my eye right away because... It was Bono at the Rock Hall grabbing this big giant plexiglass case and he had his face planted right on it. And I couldn't figure out why until I looked a little closer. There was a guitar in the case. Now, one day when Bono came to the Rock Hall, he saw this guitar, this beautiful JS-160 acoustic guitar in this plexiglass case on the wall, and he knew who it was right away. I mean, he knew the man who owned it, and he ran up to the case, and he put his arms around it, and he smashed his face right into the plexiglass with the biggest grin from ear to ear you'd ever want to see, because it was John Lennon's guitar. Oh, yeah, that famous J.S. Gibson that he got in 1964, and he would have it with him until the day he died, and it's also the guitar that he would record live, give Peace a chance on, in that little uh, hotel room up there in Montreal when they did a bed-in for Peace in 1969 with Yoko Ono. And on the guitar, it actually has the drawings that John himself did, little caricatures of himself and Yoko on this Gibson. So, of course, Bono loved that, and he wanted to be right up there. So he, he grabbed that case, and he just hugged it, man. He just didn't walk away. And that, to me, just said it all. That's why you too, and that's why Bono, you can tell their hearts are in their performance because rock and roll to them is not just electronic wallpaper it is a life force and they had well they had artists they idolized just like me like you might you idolize you too they idolized the beatles now one of the greatest nights for me at the rock hall was in 2012 one of those years when they had the induction ceremonies here in town and it was fabulous because i was going to be one of the vip greeters you know the the artists and their families and people from the press all of them coming to the rock hall because the night before the actual induction ceremony that would be broadcast and then recorded uh, to be broadcast later as well 
we had a big party at the Rock Hall, and there was a couple thousand people there. So you're greeting these people, and I saw Darlene Love was coming up, and I got all excited because I had never met Darlene Love. I had put some of her outfits on display, and I thought I was going to get to take her on a tour, but I just missed it. But they said, oh, we got somebody else for you here. Hold on. And I look at this guy in this black suit, and I look up at his face, and I go, oh, man, the makeup. It, it, it's Alice Cooper. Now, Alice Cooper was special to me because that song of his, I'm 18, when that came out in 19, what, 71, 72? I was 18 myself, so I mean, I immediately hooked up with Alice Cooper, and he had this beautiful woman with him, which is not a surprise. I thought it was his daughter, uh, because well, I, I know when he was on the road, she's in his stage show, and I said, oh, nice to see you, Alice, and nice that you have your daughter with you, and he goes, well, buddy, you, you just made lots of points with this young lady, because it's not my daughter, it's my wife. <laughs> so anyway, it started out well, and he said, before we go up to the VIP area where we do the press thing, he goes, why don't we go to that uh, heavy metal exhibit, because I want to look at what I gave the Rock Hall to put on display. So Alice and, and I and, and his wife, we go over to the exhibit, the heavy metal exhibit, and there they are in the middle of the case, these, well, these thigh-high leopard skin boots from the Billion Dollar Babies tour that he did in around 1973. I remember I was there. <laughs> and it was still amazing to me that I'm here with Alice now, and I saw him when I was a teenager, and there was his leopard skin boots. And that's when I asked him, I go, Alice, of course you have to call him Alice. <laughs> It just seems so natural. I don't know why. But I go, what was the most dangerous thing about being on stage? I mean, over the years, you've been electrocuted in an electric chair. You've, you've been, you've been you, well, you've been beheaded with a guillotine. And uh, I, I, go, I go, there's so many things going on stage. One of them had to be actually something that would be the most dangerous. Because he even was hung one night on stage when they had the gallows up there. I, I saw that show in 72 here, too, in Cleveland, which was an interesting show because... They had opening acts of Sha Na Na when they were actually cool and hardcore rock and roll, and Flo and Eddie, you know, Mark Bowman and Howard Kalin from the Turtles, and the, what a what a what a great opening set of acts. And then you have Alice Cooper, and then he was hung that night. So anyway, I'm asking Alice once again, what was the most dangerous thing? And he looked at the boots, and he said, "The boots." He goes, it, "It's those boots," and I'll tell you why. He goes, "He goes, I can't tell you." How many times I've almost fallen off a stage, or I did fall off a stage wearing those things. Of course, in those days, <laughs> he goes, I always usually had a fifth of Jack Daniels in my hand, but I'm clean now. He goes, I'm all done with all that. He goes, but that's why you guys got the boots. And I go, yeah, I remember, boy, it was, it was very much like the Marilyn Manson of our time. I mean, when you came out with the makeup. And then I said, you know, that brings up a, a, a topic. I just heard Gene Simmons a kiss the other night talking about the makeup that they used in the band. And Alice looks at me and he says, he goes, well, no matter what Gene says, let me tell you, I had a I had a heart to heart talk with him one night about the makeup. And he was telling me they were going to start using it in their stage act. And Alice said, he goes, well, don't do what I do. Don't copy me. And he goes, I, I wasn't making a threat. I was giving Gene some advice. He goes, he wanted to do something a little bit different. So that's why Kiss actually went with characters, different personas in the band, you know, like cartoon type characters, comic book characters, larger than life superheroes, you know. You got uh, uh, you got Peter Chris there. He's uh, the Cat Man, and of course you got the Spaceman. And with Gene Simmons, you got the Demon. That kind of came because Alice kind of nudged him to go in a different direction than doing the Gothic horror thing. So I take Alice up to the VIP room, let him go, and then I hook up with another group of rock inductees this year. In 2012, they did something special at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They inducted, and I, and I don't want to call them the backup bands because they were much more than that, but. In so many bands, they just inducted the lead guys, like they inducted Buddy Holly, but they didn't induct the Crickets, or James Brown, and they didn't induct the Famous Flames, or, well, Smokey Robinson. They didn't induct the Miracles with him either. 
And this year in 2012, they were going to make up for all that. All these groups that were a part of the whole piece, and once again, not really the backup bands that did not get inducted with the lead singers or the lead member of the group were now going to be inducted in 2012. And I was very fortunate to take the Blue Caps in. Now, some of you younger listeners to my show will go, wait a minute, the Blue Caps? Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps. Now, Gene Vincent recorded this unbelievable song, 1956, that is a rock and roll classic, Bebop Alula. Capitol Records was looking for a, another Elvis. RCA had Elvis, and they were looking for another guy, like a rockabilly type guy. And that's why they signed on Gene Vincent, and he had a great band with him, the Blue Caps. They, they wrote a lot of the songs together, too, as well. But Bebop Alula is one of those rock standards. And if you don't realize how important it is, you got to think uh, the, the meeting of two of the greatest songwriters of all time was because of this attraction to, well, Bebop Alula. It was John Lennon, 16 years old. He's got a band called The Quarrymen in Liverpool. You might have heard that story. <laughs> and he did his first little show, this little garden feat in Liverpool, and he starts singing Bebop Alula. And there's a guy in the audience who came to see him that night, a 15-year-old Paul McCartney. He knows the chords of Bebop Alula. He's a Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps fan. So they immediately bond. He loves the song, loves John Lennon, and within a couple days, well, that is the nucleus of the Beatles, and it all started with Paul McCartney hearing John Lennon doing Bebop Alula. So, Gene Vincent, Blue Caps, legends in rock and roll. Gene Vincent sadly died in the early 1970s in his 30s, but the Blue Caps were now being inducted, and they were all in their early 80s at this time, and I was taking through the remaining Blue Caps with their wives, and, and they were just thrilled. They couldn't believe it, that they were going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I took them all around, and they were like, they were like teenagers themselves, just looking at all the exhibits and all the different artifacts. And then when I told them that earlier I had uh, brought Alice Cooper in, they all they all lightened up like, wait a minute, Alice Cooper, do you think that you could introduce us to Alice and, and maybe we could get a picture with him? And I said, well, I don't see why not. He's an inductee. You're an inductee. You guys are all in the same club here. So I take the Blue Caps up to the VIP area to meet Alice. And, and, and you know, they were very... They were very almost reverential. It's like, oh, it's Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper, when I tell him who these guys are, his eyes light up too, even through the makeup. And he just can't believe it. He goes, I love Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps. He goes, I listened to them as a teenager. And he goes, in 1969, he goes, I actually played with Gene Vincent in uh, Toronto at this big festival. Now, the Blue Caps weren't with him at that time, so he didn't get to meet them at that point. So this would be the first time that Alice was going to actually meet the rest of the band, the Blue Caps. But in 69, Alice Cooper, Gene Vincent, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, The Doors. The surprise group was Plastic Ono Band. That was the first time that John Lennon would hit a stage live since the Beatles did their last show in 66. And this time he brought Eric Clapton with him. So anyway, Alice remembers the night he was with the Blue Caps in Toronto, and they're having the greatest time. I mean, once again, it's a, it's a, it's a, they're just having a blast. And then all of a sudden, I see these beards coming at us. You know what I'm talking about, right? ZZ Top. Yeah, Billy Gibbons, Dusty Hill were also at the party this night at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for the inductions and everything. And when they heard that we had the Blue Caps <laughs> over there, they come flying over because they too were fans of Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps. So this, this whole love fest is going on, and I'm just standing there in total amazement, you know, looking at looking at 80-year-old men in the blue caps, and they can't believe they were Alice and ZZ Top. And then I'm looking at the faces of Alice Cooper and, and Billy and Dusty and, and every one of them. It's like a gang of teenagers all talking about their favorite music, their favorite times. They're taking pictures of each other. One of the best memories that I ever had at the Rock Hall. But once again, that's why they're still performing to this very day and why they still have that passion about it. They all loved rock and roll. They were all fans of it. And that, of course, like I said, is the whole theme tonight of what we're talking about on this show. 
it's not just Alice Cooper and ZZ Top, because a little bit later on at the Rock Hall, once again, I told you I'm working in exhibits. I helped build the exhibits there, and we were doing an exhibit for Graham Nash. Graham Nash, of course, I idolized as a kid in the British Invasion. He was in the Hollies, and then later on, as I got a little older, he moved to another band that I loved, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and sometimes Young. <laughs> so anyway, we do this whole exhibit on Graham Nash, and when we do these exhibits, these special ones for one particular artist, we cover not only their musical interests, but other interests in their life. We had we had photographs that Graham Nash did, because Graham is, of course, a photographer, and he's a little bit of an artist, so some of his art, but there was an interesting piece in his exhibit that we did at the Rock Hall. It was a big chunk of a wooden fence. It looked like an old Western style fence, and I really didn't, really couldn't comprehend why this was in the exhibit till I found out the backstory. It was a part of a fence that Graham Nash had stolen. <laughs> and where did he steal it from? From Dealey Plaza. Yes, that plaza, the one where JFK, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated, sadly, in November of 1963, because I did not know it until we did this exhibit that Graham Nash is kind of a JFK buff and a conspiracy theory guy. He likes all that. He's very interested. So he was on tour once. Graham Nash's tour bus is in Dallas, and he goes, let's go down to Dealey Plaza. Let's go down by the grassy knoll where that supposed, you know, a mystery shooter was, not only just Lee Harvey Oswald, but somebody else. So they go down to Dealey Plaza. The tour bus pulls up, and Graham says he goes to the bus driver. He goes, keep the thing running. And he runs out with that with another accomplice, which I don't know which one of the band members that was. And they break and pull off this big chunk of the fence that was in Dealey Plaza in Dallas. And they took it home with them. And then years later, it ends up at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in this exhibit. One of his many interests. So if you're ever wondering in Dealey what happened to that fence, well, it, it, Graham's got it. Now, it wasn't just, of course, his fun outside interests. It was his music. And this is where we get to the fan aspect of Graham Nash, because he's a, he's a collector of rock and roll artifacts, too. His wife bought him uh, a beautiful guitar of Dwayne Allman's and the Allman Brothers. He was favorite guitar to do slide on. And Graham Nash, his wife, gave it to him on his birthday because she knew how much he loved rock and roll and the Allman Brothers. And he collected these things. And he also loaned it to the Rock Hall for this exhibit so we could share it uh, with his fans and his interest with the Allman Brothers. But the thing that got me when I was putting this exhibit together is we had a couple of discs in there, Buddy Holly discs. These were test pressings of his first recordings that Graham had bought at an auction. I believe it was Maybe Baby and that'll be the day, his biggest hits. And uh, next to it was a photograph of Graham Nash. Now, usually when we do these exhibits, we don't meet the artist, but Graham was in town, and he wanted to meet the people who put it together. So I had a few moments to talk to Graham Nash, and I mean, I had to ask him right away. I go, look at this picture next to the Buddy Holly disc. It's you holding this big acoustic guitar, and you are just grinning ear to ear. You look like the happiest guy in the face of the earth. And he goes, well, I'll tell you why. He goes, that is Buddy Holly's guitar. I met his, his widow once, Maria, and she let me play the guitar. And she said, this is Buddy's guitar, the one that he wrote, Maybe Baby, That'll Be the Day on. Graham goes, I, I couldn't believe it. He goes, he goes, I actually started playing. Buddy Holly songs on Buddy's guitar. He goes, that was like the, the best day of my life. So I'm looking at Graham Nash at once again, beaming. I mean, just beaming. His eyes, the grin. He's, when he's telling the story, he loved Buddy Holly. And that's when he tells me, he goes, of course. He goes, where do you think we got the name of our first group, the Hollies, from? He goes, it was, he goes, it was because of Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly and the Crickets. He goes, and that's why we use that as a name. He goes, the Beatles did the same thing. And I go, well, that's right. The Beatles were huge fans. Once again, biggest group in the world, the Beatles. They had their artists that they idolized. They love Buddy Holly and the Crickets. One of the first songs they recorded in a little makeshift studio was That'll Be the Day. But then think about the name of the Beatles. 
It comes from the crickets. Buddy Holly and the crickets. John, of course, wanted to do something kind of like that. So they come up with the bug name, you know, the Beatles. But then they're always loving that wordplay. Him and Paul McCartney, when they write songs, let's change it around a bit. And they add an A to the name. So you got beat, like in beat music. But it's a little crickets thing, a tribute to Buddy Holly. And it is the Beatles. So Graham Nash is telling me all these stories and that. And you could just see it in his eyes. He was like the happiest guy on the face of the earth, talking once again about an artist that he loved and that was Buddy Holly, and he got to hold his guitar and play those songs on it. So I said, when I, when I see that, it just, it makes my heart just like, it just beat a hundred times faster, and you feel really nice and warm inside, because wow, the guys that I idolized, like Graham Nash in the Hollies and all in the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, they feel about the music and the artists the same way that I do. So it's great. Now, there's another guy that came to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that has a reputation in the business, uh, sometimes known as the Little Bastard. <laughs> now, we did an exhibit on him, and we did not call it the Little Bastard exhibit. <laughs> we called it the John Mellencamp exhibit because, you know, John to me is pure rock and roll, especially today. And he has a little bit of a reputation because he does the music the way he wants it. He's not just looking for a hit record or a big hit. He's doing music that is important to him, something that he feels inside deeply. And he is very exacting in what he wants and he hoards and when he does touring. So he's gotten a reputation. Now, even some people at the Rock Hall didn't really like him that much. And they're like, well, wait a minute. I mean, that's rock and roll, isn't it? Standing by what you believe in and doing the music, not only for yourself, but the best you can for the fans. And this was proven because John Mellencamp, we didn't know once we got done with this exhibit. And it was not only just his music, which was interesting too, it was his art. He's a great painter. Bob Dylan actually saw a lot of... Uh, his work, and he told John Mellencamp, he said, this stuff needs to be on exhibit, and it is. It's been in museums around the world, and then we had some in our exhibit for John Mellencamp at the Rock Hall. So it was a very popular exhibit, loved doing it. And then shortly thereafter, like I said, we didn't know if he was ever going to come in to see it once we had put it together, but one day, a, a tour bus pulls up. John Mellencamp and his band is in town. They're on the road. It we, we, was unexpected. Many times that happens at the Rock Hall. We get unexpected visitors, biggest, big stars in rock and roll. I mean, one day we saw Steven Tyler just having some lunch and a sandwich in our little cafe there. He said, oh, yeah, I just stopped in on my own. He goes, just to see what was going on here. So you never know. So Mellencamp comes in, and we have a stage outside in front of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame where we do live shows. And he just said, do you think I could do a little impromptu show? Just jump on the stage and start playing. We don't even have to announce me or anything. Well, we had some guitars and amps like we do for visitors and things. So we immediately set it up. And John Mellencamp is on stage. And he's just doing this for his fans. He's just giving them a show. But he doesn't tell anybody who it is. He just starts doing his material. And some guy who's watching it comes running into the rock hall trying to find his friends. He goes, you got to see this guy out here on stage. He is the best John Mellencamp impersonator I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and that's because it was John Mellencamp. Some people may refer to him as the little bastard, but I, I don't think of him that way. I think the guy's great. He's rock and roll John Mellencamp. He does it for the fans. And he came there and he was just psyched to do that little show just for the people live there. And unexpectedly, they got to see John Mellencamp at his best at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, talk about big stars in rock and roll. One day, Bruce Springsteen will visit the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he's got some of the members of the E Street Band with him. And he goes to see our British Invasion exhibit. And when he gets close, he stops dead in his tracks because he sees this beautiful old beat-up guitar. It's this 1954 Fender Esquire guitar. And why does Bruce stop? Because it is Jeff Beck's guitar. It is the main guitar in the 60s that he used with the Yardbirds. Now, Eric Clapton starts with the Yardbirds in the beginning and Jimmy Page at the end. But the main bulk of their recordings, like, you know, Heart Full of Soul and all those great things, like Over, Under, Sideways, Down, and Shapes of Things, 
That guitar, that very unique, almost Eastern-sounding guitar with the fuzz tone and everything, is Jeff Beck's, and this was the guitar that he used in the Yardbirds. Bruce can't take his eyes off it, and then he starts going for the band. He goes, get over here, guys, quick, you gotta come over here. This is the guitar. He goes, this is the guitar that I saw Jeff Beck play back near Jersey in the 60s when the Yardbirds came to town, and he just can't get over it. The guys in the band are flipping out. Once again, it's like a gang of teenagers in their first rock and roll band, like probably when they learned Heartful of Soul for the first time, looking at this guitar, and then Bruce asks us. Bruce Springsteen is now one of the board members at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but at that time he was not, but he was still one of the biggest stars in the history of rock. He asked, do you think it's possible that we could get permission for me to actually hold that guitar in my hand for just a moment? So it was Bruce Springsteen, and uh, we got the head curators down there, and they opened the case, and they allowed him. Now it's even got a little more value to it, because not only has Jeff Beck played this guitar, but now Bruce Springsteen as well has held it in his hands. A little bit of his DNA, his rock and roll soul is on that guitar. But to me, that says it all. Why, when you go to see Bruce Springsteen, he does these three and a half hour shows, he never stops because he has that passion for the music that, that, it, that caused him to pick up a guitar and start a band when he was a teenager in the 60s. That's all a part of it. He's a fan too, and he respects and loves his fans, and that's why you always get the best shows with Bruce Springsteen. And we made his day at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when we let him hold <laughs> Jeff Beck. Fender Esquire guitar. Now, it's interesting that some people, like a woman that I met one night who was married to one of the biggest stars in the history of rock and roll, that would not be the person that she idolized the most. It was also at this same year when we had the uh, inductions here in Cleveland, and I was, I was taking VIPs through the Rock Hall for tours and greeting them at the front door, and I'm at the front door waiting with all these people coming in, and this woman sits down next to me, and we didn't introduce ourselves, but right before she sat down, I had taken Tommy James. You know, Tommy James and the Shondells, my baby does the hanky-panky. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting carried away. I had to take him up to the press room. And she saw this. She said to me, do you think you could introduce me to uh, Tommy James? And she was, that was Tommy James, right? I thought, I did hear you right. I go, oh, yeah, that was Tommy James. I go, but that's something we're really not supposed to do. I go, who are you? And she goes, oh, uh, I'm the wife of Jerry. I go, Jerry? Oh, oh, Jerry Lee. Jerry Lee Lewis? <laughs> I go, wait a minute. I go, is Jerry Lee Lewis here tonight? I haven't seen him. We had, she goes, oh, he's here, but he's not at the party. He doesn't care for these, these big brouhaha's. He goes, he, he's just coming here tonight to sit with Paul McCartney at the induction ceremonies that's going to take place tomorrow night. She goes, but I like to be where all the action is and all the fun is. And I just, I'm a big Tommy James fan. I go, you're married to the killer, Jerry Lee Lewis. <laughs> she goes, oh yeah, but she goes, I want to, I, she goes, I really love Tommy James. So we did arrange that. I talked to Tommy James and his manager and he just said, oh, that would be fabulous. That would be wonderful. And they just had a great time. And I also heard a great story because later on, uh, this woman did something special for the Rock Hall, maybe not on purpose, but we received years later, this beautiful gold painted baby grand piano. It was Jerry Lee Lewis's. It was a baby grand piano that he had in his home for 50 years. And the woman that I met, his wife, said, well, yeah, I, I finally had to say to him, I go, do you think we can finally get rid of that piano? You know, the one that your first wife gave you? Yeah, yeah, it was the, the piano that, that well, his 13-year-old, you know, child bride, uh, Myra, that Jerry Lee married, she gave it to Jerry Lee Lewis as a gift many years later, and it was in his home all these years, and his wife, his current-day wife, 
uh, said, can we just finally get rid of that thing? <laughs> it's been here for half a century. And that's when Jerry said, well, I think I'll just donate it to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And man, we were just thrilled to have this solid gold piano. It wasn't made out of gold, but it was painted gold and it looked really cool. And we had it in one of our big exhibits uh, to have Jerry Lee Lewis, the killer. Oh yeah. To have his piano in there, Rock and Roll inductee. It was a wonderful gift. And we got to thank his, his wife for that. So anyway, I have a great story that is maybe my best memory of being at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for a couple of reasons. I was doing tours once as a docent at the Rock Hall, and I was in front of the Beatles exhibit, and a couple of men came up. We started talking Beatles, and I started telling them all the great stories about all the pieces we had in the display case, the collarless jackets and, you know, John's guitar and Ringo's little drums there and everything. And, they, and, they, and the guy said, he goes, well, wait a minute. He goes, he goes, that's a story that Ringo told us. And I go, wait a minute, Ringo, who, who are you guys? And they said, well, and I should have recognized them, but Ringo was on the road at this time with his all-star band and uh, his band members in the all-star band. A couple of them came to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This was the drummer, Greg Bissonette, and their singer, one of the singers anyway, uh, Richard Page of Mr. Mister. And I go, that is amazing. I was Ringo around. He goes, no, he, he doesn't care to come to things like this, like museums. He's back at the hotel resting, but we wanted to come and we wanted to see this. And we were, we're thrilled because you're telling all these great stories. And I go, well, don't you talk to Ringo about the old days with the Beatles? And he says, well, we do. But all the band members, he goes, we're, we're, all, we're all big Beatle fans. Everybody in his all-star band, which has been everybody from Todd Rundgren, Eric Harmon, Joe Walsh. And like I said, I got Mr. Mister here, Richard Page, and Greg Bissonette, uh, one after another. Uh, I, we, we all want to talk about the Beatles, but we respect Ringo's privacy on the road about that because he's constantly being peppered, so to speak, <laughs> with questions about his days with the Beatles. But if Ringo brings up the topic of the Fab Four, the Beatles, well, we're all in and we're all there. And then it's fair game. We can talk about anything. And he's very gracious. And we have a lot of fun memories. And it is a blast. We're in his band. We're getting to hear all the great days about the road with the Beatles. And it's just, he goes, he goes for all of us being Beatle fans, we can't even believe it. You know, we pinch ourselves on a regular basis being in the band. This is when I ask him, I go, well, there is a story that I heard that Ringo supposedly told, and maybe you could confirm it for me because it's one of the most touching stories I've ever heard. Uh, it was right around the time that George Harrison was very sick and ill with his cancer and really was only a short time away from passing away. Ringo was going to see his first wife in a hospital because she too sadly was dying at this point. On the way there, he said, I also wanted to stop and see George. And this tells you what kind of a bond and relationship that uh, George and Ringo had. Now, this is the story I heard, and I'm asking his band members if this was confirmed. And they said, well, we've heard this story, and it's very true. And you know what happens when Ringo went to see George, and he's telling George that I'm going to see Maureen as sick as George was. George Harrison, his good friend on the road that they shared rooms with the Beatles, and actually George was the guy who pulled Ringo into the group in the early days. They all loved Ringo, but George kind of pushed for him a little extra hard in the beginning, his good buddy George says, would you like me to go with you for moral support? Of course, Ringo said no. And, you know, being as sick as George was and this story uh, and telling it to this group, Ringo was in tears. All the band members in his all-star band were in tears because they all loved Ringo. They loved the Beatles. And it was nice to know. It was great to know. And it's great for me that they confirmed the story that there was that special bond even to the very end where they were the closest of friends and buddies. And George, so, so sickly, so ill, was willing to go with Ringo, get out of his bed, and I'll go with you, Ringo, just so we can have a little bit of support. So that was a great story. And my last memory also concerns Ringo, because when he was inducted a few years later as a solo artist at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he lent us his main Beatle drum set, 
that he had in the Beatles from 1964 to 1968. You know, that beautiful black Pearl Ludwig drum set with the Beatle logo on the front, the one you saw him play, and Ed Sullivan and everything else. That was loaned to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I, of course, working in exhibits, we were accessioning it, which means checking each piece with his main drum tech to put on display. So got to be kind of friendly with him. And uh, he just told us, he goes, well, I'm very, I'm very, he goes, I'm very happy uh, to meet you because I know you're a Beatles fan, but you're also a professional exhibit preparator. And the other gentleman I work with, the lead preparator, my boss, Andre Septovic, he is a true professional as well. He goes, I trust these drums with you, and I trust the people I've dealt with at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There are four vintage Ringo sets that travel from museums and different showings, and we're very picky about who gets them. So I will tell Ringo personally that I'm very confident that the drums are in good hands. So that made me feel great, not only as a professional exhibit preparator at this point, but as a Beatle fan. Now, Two years later, we only should have had that drum set about a year because usually when somebody's inducted, they only let us have it for that time period. Ringo's drum tech is back, and we go out to dinner. We take the drum set down and everything, and he said, oh, by the way, he goes, I just want to let you guys know, I did tell Ringo how much I really uh, appreciated your professionalism and how safe I thought the drums were with you. And, you know, we were, that's another one of the reasons. He goes, there was a few, but that was one of the main reasons that we allowed you to keep it longer than just one year. And it's like, whoa, you know, I mean, you can't give a better compliment to somebody who's a Beatle fan for your entire life to know that somehow Ringo knows about you, even though I didn't ever get to meet Ringo. <laughs> but he got the word that, yeah, this guy and the people that he works with are going to take care of your drums and actually do a great job of putting them on display at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So that is probably my favorite memory of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, even more than meeting some of these people, because... There is no group bigger and me being a rock and roll fan than the Beatles. So once again, that's our little episode today. And that will be rock stars or us, those rock fans that we always talk about uh, who do the best shows, the best performances, because they do have a love in their heart for the music and the artists that they idolized. And these are the ones that we idolize. So isn't that cool? Isn't that great to hear all that? We will continue in future episodes to talk more about that, people I met, future episodes, people I interviewed during my radio years. That's another episode coming up. We are also going to talk more about the mysterious side of rock and roll, uh, John Lennon and the number nine in his life. A lot of different topics coming up. The name of the show is Rock and Roll Nuggets, and I'm your host as always, and my name is Heggs, Luther Heggs, Rock and Roll Nuggets, Tales from the Gold Mine, the gold mine of rock and roll, where we dig deep to explore the myths, the legends, and the lore of rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs>